Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker K. Hey guys, welcome to Upbeat, and thank you very much for being here and for listening in today. If you would, please follow the podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. That is always super appreciated, so thank you for that. Uh, I hope you guys had a great Christmas. I know I did. Uh, actually, I received the gift in the mail from someone anonymous. It was kind of fun. Uh, it was addressed to Parker Upbeat Kane, and it's a book called Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion, uh, which I've heard of before. I believe it's a national best-selling book, and I've always been interested to check it out. So I don't know who sent this to me, but if you're listening, <laughs> please know that I'm grateful for it, and I'm extremely excited to jump in and read this and check it out. So thank you very much. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate you guys kicking off your week with upbeats in this, you know, limbo before Christmas and the new year. And I appreciate you guys listening in week to week, you know, making upbeat just a part of your routine. That means a lot to me. Uh, but I also understand if you've missed episodes or if you're not completely caught up, that is totally okay. And that's why I make these six month review episodes. And I've said it in the other ones, and I'll say it in this one. I don't expect every single person to catch every single episode. That's just an impossible ask. Uh, you know, life happens, things get crazy, and things have been especially crazy in this year, good old 2020. <laughs> so I totally get it. But that's why I love making episodes like this one. I've interviewed some really just incredible people, and there have been a lot of really sincere and amazing moments and conversations and helpful and valuable conversations. And so uh, it's impossible to feature every single awesome moment in one episode, but I do my best to share clips with you here of these amazing guests to hopefully give you a good feel of who they are and what they do and what we talked about on the show. And that way, if you're interested, you can go back and listen to their full episodes. Uh, that's really the purpose of these six-month reviews is to one, catch you up if you're not caught up, Two, help you customize your listening experience a little bit better by finding the episodes that you'd actually like the most. So if you hear someone in this episode that you really like, check the description or go to this go to this episode on the website, parkercane.co, and I'll have links to all the episodes, the titles, the guest names, the topics, all that stuff. So you can go back and find the ones that you're really interested in. And three, uh, if you've been listening then these are still just some really good takeaways and reminders to kind of refresh us on what all we've learned in the last six months. A lot can happen in six months. It's pretty cool, actually, to go back and listen to these uh, because you realize just how much has happened in the last six months. I mean, that's not a super long time. And a lot has happened in those six months and not even just on upbeat, but in the world and in, in the country. We've talked, I mean, if you go back to the very first one of this six months, uh, we're talking about COVID. We're talking about the importance of online presence during COVID. We're talking about how to build our finances during COVID and how to make changes and pivot during COVID. This has been a really challenging year. And it's special to look back on these episodes and just see what good we can take away uh, from those challenges and what all we've been able to do and what all we've been able to learn and how much we've been able to grow. It's just fascinating. Uh, but with that said, again, you guys, thank you very much for being here, listening to Upbeats. Let's get into it. So let's see here. Um, it's 2020. How how important, I mean, this sounds like a silly question, but how important is it to have an online presence these days? Like, does it pretty much, like, is it pretty much necessary for everyone nowadays? 
I gave an example when I was talking somewhere recently and I, I said, especially in this coronavirus time, if you are a business that doesn't understand or doesn't have something as simple as your Google Maps location, which to be fair is complex for a lot of people that don't know how it works, but if your Google Maps location isn't open or isn't updated, people might not know that they can come to the store and pick things up out at the curb, or they might not know that your restaurant is open or something like that. When in reality, that's all you're trying to do is capture new customers, get people to stop in or, or buy from you in some of these tough times. It's not hard to do that, but you have to know that you need to, to do that. So um, the counter example is if you're a hedge fund and you just have a picture of a tree on your website and you're still going to manage your $5 billion, <laughs> like that's, that's fine. They don't need, I mean, it would be nice if more hedge funds are more transparent and open, but they don't need to be for, for their clientele. So I would say, yeah, it is pretty much a prerequisite. If you are trying to, if you're trying to grow your business at all, you pretty much have to be online. The first thing we recommend if you have a website, so there's, there's a, I'd say a number of things, but the first thing, if you have a website, put Google analytics on there, you might have a Shopify website, you might have Squarespace or something else like that, but just register for a Google analytics account. If you have any reasonably normal website, it is going to be easy to get Google analytics on there. And if all you do is use it to see how many people come on a daily basis and where they come from, like, do they come from uh, Twitter? Do they come from other referral sites? Do they come from Google? Do they come from Facebook? You just start to get it. You need that to have a sense of where people are finding you from. Like people aren't waking up in the morning and typing in crimsonadvantage.com. I would love it if they did, but that's just not happening. So we need to know where they're coming from. Uh, that's sort of the, the base level is understand the free things. There are cool other things that come after that, like Google Search Console, where you can start to see what things people are searching for on Google before they find your website. Like that's pretty cool. It's not as creepy as it sounds, I promise. But uh, <laughs> so registering for Google Search Console is another one. Uh, in terms of social media strategy and that sort of thing, yes, you should claim all your handles. You should link to them from your website. That actually helps for a number of things like making your organic when people search for you on Google. When people search for Parker Kane, okay, what am I seeing? Okay, yeah, Upbeat's one of the first things. Okay, we're finding out about you, what you say, what you do. Uh, the other thing I would say is make sure that when you're posting, whether it's on social media or, or to your website or eventually you're writing an email newsletter or something like that, make sure that there's something of value there for whoever you think your main audience is. Don't try and make something useful for everybody because you're going to fail. It's going to be useful to nobody. But make sure there's some value. Don't just post Instagram pictures of your dog or the food that you ate or anything like that. If you're giving me like the macronutrient breakdown of what your plate was and why it was better than somebody else, like, okay, I can learn from that. If you're trying to just post or share things because others are doing it or you feel like you need to every day, that is a waste of your time and energy. Just focus on the things that you think actually deliver value to people. And not enough businesses is a perfect example when we go talk with businesses, very few of them have Googled themselves recently. It's shocking. Like we take a, we'll go and search for them, sh uh, show them the, the screenshot of the results, show them their competitors and what they're doing better. And we're just sort of like, do you realize this is even a thing? Do you, do you see that there are problems here? And I think that even just that level of, okay, what are your competitors doing? What are they saying? Don't go copy them but you should at least understand what they're doing. The people that you aspire to, to be like, what are they saying? What are they doing? Uh, that level of research and using a couple of free tools will get you so much further than a $10,000 a month ad budget that's targeted at everything and not delivering value to anybody. And, you know, eventually I got out and 
knew that my life had meaning beyond sports and started to just get zealous about like, what's my purpose? Because to me, like surface level statements, like, um, you know, find what you're passionate about wasn't enough for me because I was passionate about playing sports. So I needed something deeper. Like what, why did I survive? Like, why am I here on earth? And so I mean, every, you know, Rick Warren, Simon Sinek, every purpose course that's out there, everything that's out there, I read and read and studied and prayed and meditated and asked mentors and self-reflected and journaled and talked to counselors because I'm trying to find why Daryl Stinson is alive. And I came to this place where I found something, a purpose statement that was really unique to who I was. And I started to go after it. And I got to this point in my life where I love my life so much that I wouldn't even trade it for my former life as an athlete. And I was like, how did I get here? And I recognized that there was five phases of transition that I write about in my book that's coming out in August. Who am I after sports? And, and this is a process we coach athletes through. Uh, there was five phases that I went through uh, to get over sports, discover my purpose and start to build and live my dreams. Um, I started to share that process with others. That's where Second Chance Athletes comes from. You know, I got into ministry. You know, uh, I was able to express myself fully through music and and speaking and writing and just like mentorship and all this stuff. And and I dude, I'm I just love my life now. And I'm telling you, fulfillment is so underrated. Like it's it's become such a buzzword that I think people don't even desire it anymore. But I'm telling you, do not live this life unfulfilled because it's not just about enjoying life. It's about what you are able to give to the world when you enjoy life. Like the people that I'm able to impact with my message and my story and and my writing and my mentorship because I found my purpose is amazing. Amazing. And uh, I'm just getting started. And I'm super passionate, man, about helping misfits turn their pain into purpose and profit helping people build a legacy that lasts for generations to come. I mean, I know folks that really haven't been affected much at all, right? There, some folks work from home to begin with, and they've still got their job and they're still working. Uh, they, we, of course, we've all been affected in terms of how we live our lives. But, but financially, I know a lot of people that haven't been affected at all. And then, you know, I know folks, you know, either it's in the retail or travel industries, you, you didn't have a job for months. Now, the folks that I know were able to get through largely on the, the, uh, the financial aid, effectively, that the federal government had, had, had authorized through what's called the CARES Act, right? So they were getting, of course, a stimulus check and um, enhanced unemployment. Mm-hmm. And that's how they got through it. But I'll tell you the biggest effect I've seen is, you know, when we went into this, you couldn't do anything, right? You couldn't go to a coffee shop. You couldn't go out to eat. You couldn't go to the movies. And I think a lot of people, after several weeks of that, at least that I've talked to, said, you know, I took all these things for granted. And I kind of assumed that I needed all of these things to be happy. And yeah, I missed them at first. But now I'm not so sure I had it right to begin with. Maybe the things I thought were making me happy, uh, particularly as it relates to how I'm spending my money, you know, maybe those those weren't as important to me uh, as I thought they were. Interesting. Yeah. And yeah, because, you know, have you heard of the latte factor? I don't know if you're familiar with the latte factor. I haven't personally, no. Well, it, it, the idea is rather than spending a couple of bucks a day on a latte at your you know, at Starbucks or wherever, save the money and invest it. 
And if you do that, it seems like it's so insignificant. What's whatever, three, four, five bucks a day, how much is that going to turn out to be? But over, you know, a lifetime of investing, it's hundreds of thousands and potentially even millions of dollars. And one of the responses I get from folks is, well, that's silly, Rob. I want to live my life, right? I mean, I understand we should save some, but I want to have fun and live life to the fullest. You never know, you know, tomorrow is promised to no one. My response to that is always, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely you do. And you have to decide for yourself what that means for you. And if that means a $5 latte every day, good luck and Godspeed. But have you ever thought that, yeah, maybe if you actually went without it for a few weeks, you might find out that, you know, it turns out that's not actually as um, important to me as I thought it was. Now, you know, you, you could try and experiment and go without whatever it might be for three weeks and you may conclude, yeah, that really is important to me. I want to keep consuming whatever it might be and that's perfectly fine. But um, in, in some ways, COVID has forced us into life experiments that most of us would have never undertaken, but we're forced to. You know, I, I hope a lot of good comes out of that in terms of the way we think about money and, and how we spend it and um, how we save it. I talk to a lot of people who will say things like, I just can't save, I don't have the money. And we start talking about how they're spending their money. And I say, well, wait a minute, you could save. You're choosing not to. And I, the point of that is not to pick on them. I'm not judging them. I'm not saying they should spend their money differently. That's their choice. But uh, understand the c- control and power you have, right? Uh, there are certainly some things we spend on that we absolutely have to, to spend on. You know, we've got to feed ourselves and, and clothe ourselves and have a place to live. But a lot of what we spend on is not a necessity, and we should at least understand the difference. And then what we choose to do is up to us. But uh, that difference, I think, can be life-changing for some folks. I'm glad that we kind of segued into this because I wanted to ask, like, more about what happened after that 2012 Olympic trials, like, when you retired and essentially, I guess, went back to go be a normal person and (laughs) not do the, uh, I guess, the Olympic dream anymore. I don't know if I'm saying that right or properly, but um, what happened during that time period and where was kind of the mind shift of like, okay, I'm going to go for it again? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, to me, that's really like, the meat of the story because that, that was my that was essentially my uh, transformation period so at the age of 30 i'm walking around my neighborhood every night just deeply examining the way that i move and the way that i walk and specifically what was happening was i was walking around and i was sinking all of my awareness into the inner sensations of my body trying to feel which muscles were working which muscles weren't working what sequence my body moved in, what the patterns were, what the asymmetries were. And I finally got to the point where I felt like I had a pretty good understanding of maybe what was peculiar about my gait, but also what was inefficient about my movements in general. So again, this continued, it snowballed for a while. And then I had one particular experience that really solidified this for me. And it was really a point of no return. So less than a year after I started investigating the way that I moved, it was probably about nine months later, I've come to the conclusion that my left hip is doing a lot more work than my right hip when I walk. So with each step, my left is pulling more weight than the right. I can tell, I can feel it. And so 
you know, I try with all of my might and all of my will to activate, engage my right hip so that it's working equally with my left, but I just can't do it for whatever reason. I just don't quite have the bodily control to make it happen. And so I'm getting frustrated. This was a challenge for me, uh, but a challenge I enjoy. So I, I don't know where I came up with this, honestly, but I, I thought to myself, well, if I can't make this change happen on my own, well, I'm just going to ask my body to make the change that I want and see if it'll do it on its own. And so I'm walking along, I'm walking down the sidewalk. I can remember it clear as day. And I said out loud, speaking directly to my physicality, I said, I want my right hip to work equally as my left when I walk. And instantly and spontaneously, I felt this array of contractions in my right hip going up the right side of my back into my right trapezoid and my right hip engaged in a way that I couldn't do on my own. And so this, this, was, this was pretty astounding for me. I was, I was shocked. It was kind of eerie almost. It was like I had somehow communicated with this intelligence of my body that I hadn't really acknowledged or appreciated before, and it spoke back to me. It responded. And it was, it was just a very profound moment for me. And so as, as you could imagine, that, that, really, that turns it from a hobby to an obsession. And from that point forward, things just kept escalating and escalating. And I got to the point where I realized that I, I had transformed into a far better athlete than I'd ever been in the past. And when you combine that, that sort of command over your physicality with the more psychological, emotional realizations that I had had about, you know, where my mindset was off when I was younger, you put these things together. And I just, I just thought I have come across something really special and it would be, it would be a shame not to take the opportunity to put these things into action and really demonstrate how this thing could be done better. And secondly, it was just the funnest thing that I could possibly imagine doing. Um, so it was like a combination of fun and meaning that has ultimately led me back into being a decathlon. Awesome. So you're going to approach this a little bit older but you're like, you're coming to the table with a whole new kind of drive, a whole new set of tools in your backpack, so to speak, uh, that's going to make it even better. I, absolutely. I mean, it's like, I, it's not really a remake. It's a total overhaul. So yes, I, I am older. I'm beyond my physiological peak, but I just have so many other assets that I really feel like I can best my previous self um, on the track by a significant margin. Here's what I will tell your listeners. For your immediate family, for your intimate partner, for your loved ones and your closest inner circle that spend time with you, your character more matters more than anything. In other words, integrity, core values, like selflessness, not to a detriment to yourself, but like really caring about other people, empathy, love, warmth. When it comes to the marketplace, and this is an unfortunate truth, people will know you for your skills for your ability to add value. So for example, I'm a business consultant. If I'm being hired by a business to help them grow their impact and profitability online, they're not checking in with whether or not I'm a perfect father or a perfect business partner or a perfect intimate partner because a lot of that's behind closed doors. Fulfillment will come from character. 
So focus there if you want to be fulfilled. Success will come from developing amazing skills. But what if you do both? What if you surround yourself with people who are good at righty and lefty? What if you realize finally that no one's right and no one's wrong and that there's just a right or wrong for you? And so I think that's what I've noticed in, in the engineering world versus like, you know, what I grew up in. It, no one's right or wrong. There's just what's right for you. And I think, I think that it's important to align with your best character, but also your best version of success because they're just super connected. And ego too. That's the other thing. Like if Alan walks into the studio and says like, you know, uh, how are you doing today, man? And I'm having like a really rough day and I don't feel like, I don't want to drop the ego enough to be like, you know, I can really ask for help in this moment. That's why so many people are afraid to ask for help. You got to drop the ego first, right? And I think ego is an issue for, for many people, especially if you're insecure. You have to ego up because you're afraid of letting somebody in. And if somebody sees my insecurities, God forbid, right? And I'm not saying that facetiously. I used to think that way. But you have to be vulnerable in order to connect, right? You've got to take the cover off. You've got to take the cover off in order to connect. You've got to, on your cell phone, you have that little rubber piece that covers your charger. You've got to open that up to connect. There's no way you'll be able to connect if you don't do it that way. Mm. Analogies are life. They are. They are. <laughs> well, and it's, the thing is, is it's okay to be wrong. You know, it's okay to not have all the answers. Uh, you know, I think growing up through, through school, I, I specifically think about myself in high school. I was afraid because I didn't know the answer. Like if a teacher asked something, I was like, oh shoot, I don't know. Like look away, hide. And I think we, we grow up that way. And then it kind of s- sticks with us throughout our, throughout our lives, which is unfortunate. Uh, but it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to not have the answers. It's okay to say, hey, you know what? I don't know. Let me, let me reach out to someone who does know or let me learn that. Now I know something that I need to learn <laughs> and get better at. Uh, and I think of, of what Alan said too about the left, left brain, right brain and people thinking other people are wrong. I feel like that's, like that's one way to look at it. And then another way to look at it is people think that's unobtainable and that they can never think like a left brain person. And so you can have anything that you want. You just have to work at it and it's okay to not be the best at something and to be aware of where you can improve. You need to sharpen your sales game. You need to make your client understand, you know, one of the big uh, myths is, well, know your worth. You know, if you use that argument to a client, well, how much you, why are you charging, you know, $250 for a 60 second read? Well, cause I know my worth and that's not good enough for a client to understand. I don't care if you know your worth. I want you to show me what your worth is. Don't tell me, show me, don't tell me, show me what that worth means. Why is it $250? Okay. If you're getting a price objection. True. And I've heard this argument too, with, uh, people that I know from college and stuff who are professional videographers and photographers, they do weddings and stuff like that. You know, people want to say, Hey, can you come do my wedding for like a hundred bucks? And they're thinking, well, I've been doing this 10 years and like I'd spent over three grand on equipment. And yeah, like, I don't care. <laughs> if I'm a client, I'm great. But you, I didn't tell you to spend that much money on your equipment. I didn't tell you you know, I don't care what you spent on schooling. I expect that. I'm, yeah. If you're looking for someone to, you know, to pay a hundred bucks, well, you know, I, I, I revert back to my roots in car sales and say, well, okay, where did you get that number from? Yeah. What makes you think I would do it for, you know, that what I'm doing 
what do you want it to look like? Do you want me there just to do stuff with my phone or, you know, and hand, do a hand over the files to you to edit? Or do you want a complete edited video? Oh, I want a complete edited video. Okay, well, absolutely, fair enough. Um, typically, and you know, I always posture, you know, there's an MSRP and then a price that I'm willing to do it for. So let me explain to you that, you know, per completed minute of video in Nashville averages anywhere from $1,450 to, you know, $3,000 a minute. And I stopped saying anything, either in person or on the phone. I want to hear how they're going to react. You know, mm -hmm. you can kind of hear those little nuance, like the, you know, <laughs> they're processing. I said, the good news is I'm not that high. I'm, I'm probably a little bit more on the lower end of that because I'm a one man show. I show up, we make sure everything is mic'd up the proper way. Make sure that the, uh, the pastor is mic'd up. Uh, and they can pick up the, the bride and the groom and everything that they're saying. I'm going to be a fly on the wall. You're not going to notice me. I'm going to have a camera over here to get, you know, still shots that's locked down. I might bring in an assistant to do some other roving shots. I'm going to get all the main parts and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm going to spend the next 25 hours editing it. So I'm quantifying and saying this is, you know, this is why it costs that much. You know, seeing, look at all the things that you get versus, well, I'm just worth it. <laughs> yeah, I'm worth it. And I spent this much on equipment. Right. This is what you're getting. Look at all the things that you're going to get, you know, for your wedding. Do you really want to skimp on possibly the biggest thing you're going to go back and watch on one of the biggest days of your life? You know, this is a very important piece to the puzzle, Mr. and Mrs. Customer. Do you really want to, you know, chance it by spending a hundred bucks? You can get it. You can find somebody to do it for a hundred dollars. I guarantee it. But you don't get too excited about the results. Yeah, and I'm all for, um, you know, people doing what they feel is best for them and what's right for them. Um, and I'm all for, like, learning, learning and figuring stuff out on your own and doing things on your own. But I feel like nowadays, you know, with there's so many resources available. There's so many um you know, people who have already done things before that we can certainly reach out to mentors. Like I know I've invested thousands of dollars in, in myself, in my own mentorship and my own education in my own, you know, taking online courses and just getting the skills that I need to have to be able to do what I want to do. And I'm still learning. I, and I don't, I don't think that ever really stops, right? We are always having to be curious and learn and just, you know, keep growing. Um, but I certainly feel that, when you have help from somebody, it just it's a, it's like a shortcut. It's like someone can help and and um, show you the ropes, right? And so that's been my experience when I have worked with my own mentors or my you know invested in my own uh, you know invested in programs. I feel that it just makes it things become a lot more clear. So um, yeah, I'm I'm all for following people that inspire you and you know, figuring out who is it that like motivates you. I have a lot of people that I follow that I feel like I learn a lot from them because I know that they're people doing that thing that I want to work towards and do one day. So yeah, I think it's, it's, there's nothing to be like embarrassed about of getting help. I think that if anything, I feel we actually need it. We need more support and more community. I don't know what your experience has been like, but I certainly feel that sometimes when I talk about things that I do, like most people don't really understand, <laughs> like, you know, if I'm talking about to a family member, it's like, they don't understand the whole like online world or marketing and launching like uh, publicity, all those things. And so 
I really need to surround myself with people who are supportive and who are doing the things that I want to do. And I find that when I'm in a group or a Facebook community or even just networking or uh, surrounding myself with people that are, that are doing these things already, it's kind of like, like a wave, like you're being pushed with this big wave instead of trying to swim upstream. 54% of leaders only use one uh, style of leadership. And there's multiple, there's many, many styles. So, and that would almost be like a baseball pitcher who only has one pitch Mm. or a singer. We're talking about, you know, Simon Cowell, a singer who has one note, like it would not go well, right? You've got to have versatility. And, um, and, and only 1% of leaders are capable of using four or more styles. So what you're talking about there is it's the responsibility of the leader to be able to adapt his or her style to fit the person that they're influencing or, or leading because the, the follower is the one that has really the say they're the one that chooses whether they're going to uh, they're going to follow or this leader or, you know, they're ultimately the one who's making the buying decision, so to speak. So, yeah. So I, to your question, definitely leaders need to be really good at being able to identify um, the different style and the readiness level of the person and adapt their style. Cause like you said, you know, Hey, listen, you don't, you don't deal well with that. I didn't deal well with that either. When I got beat over the head all the time, when I was brand new in the business, I would shut down. I would close off. I just didn't want to hear it anymore. And for me, I needed something different. I needed to be able to be told what I was doing right and catch me doing something right. Not just the stuff I'm doing wrong. And uh, my leader at times missed the mark on that. So, uh, so you say only 1% of leaders are, you said capable of tapping into four different kinds mm, correct. Uh, of leadership styles, I guess. Is there any kind of way uh, that we can know what kind of leader we are? I think the first thing is to build a level of awareness. So I would ask yourself the question, who's the best leader I know? And that could be a parent, it could be a relative, it could be a sibling, it could be a teacher, it could be a coach, it could be a business leader, it could be anybody. So who's the best leader that I know in terms of who's influenced me and why? Why are they so effective? What is it specifically that they do or say or how do they act in certain situations? And you can almost create a list of it. Well, this is they do this. And when I do this, this is what they say. And they're always there for me, whatever that is. And then think about the opposite side. Who's, who's the worst leader you know? We've all had bad ones, whether it's a teacher, a coach, a business leader, whatever. And why? You know, so that coach that you had that was hard on you, whatever, what were the reasons? What happened when they were really beating on you or whatever it was or delivering a certain message? What did you do? How did it make you feel? Because you can learn so much. You can learn almost as much, if not more, maybe by a bad leader than you can as a good, from a good leader. So some people feel like, hey, I really haven't gotten the advantage of having great leaders. Well, if you've had bad leaders, you've actually had an, an advantage because you know what it's like. When I had bad leaders, I was like, okay, I know this is not what I'm going to do. And here's why. I know when this leader told me that their bonus was on the line and I needed to perform better so they get a bigger bonus. Um, I knew that that just made me almost do the opposite. I'm like, I don't, really don't care about your bonus. I mean, I'm, tr- I'm trying to make my ends meet and keep a roof over my head. And you're telling me about your bonus so you can buy your next car. You know, I know that, you know, calling me out in public because I didn't do something right in front of all my peers 
backfired too because I got angry and resentful and spiteful. And, you know, so you kind of learn that way what the things are that are really going to make you uh, turn you into the ideal leader. The list of things you want to do and the list of things you don't want to do. Yeah. Oh, man. What a story. So when I went to go try for Shark Tank, they make you sign this form. And it says one of the one of the rules is that you can't be running for elected office while on the network. And so I didn't think I was going to make it. Right? I was like, oh, let me let me go try this show. And I signed the documents. Right. And the same year I was up for reelection. No one was running against me. Um, I, done, I, I think I had done a pretty good job. Nobody, you know, I was the only elected official that um, had no opponent. So I made it so far into the show uh, out of 42,000 people that had um, applied for the show. I was number 92 and wow. um, they were, they were um, buying my set. We were going over my pitch. I was getting ready to go down to Hollywood and they said, Rob, you signed this document, but you're still an elected official. You can't come on the show. You need to choose. You either choose your job and you stay there and don't come on the show or you need to quit. So I quit. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to take the risk. I'll quit my job. And I, you know, I let them know I quit my job. It's all in the papers from St. George, Utah to Seattle to Tri-Cities, Washington. Elected official quits job to take chance on Shark Tank for to- this toilet seat run, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> all over the paper. And everyone is all getting all excited. And then I get the call a week before I'm supposed to go down there that they cut me, that they found another company to take my place. And listen, I was way early. The, the first prototype that they saw was this huge, you know, the, the big handicap looking seat. It's like this thick. And it goes... My seat looked like this. It, it was like the first prototype. And, and they, they had said, Rob, sorry, we found a company that have been running for three years now. They have sales. Um, and sorry, the producers cut you. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Everybody thought I was going on a show. I, I was banking on the show like, oh, my, I'm, I'm about to be a millionaire. You know, I was so young in the game. I was like, if I'm in Shark Tank, I'm an instant millionaire. And when they told me the news, I was depressed, man. I was depressed. I got punched in the gut for like two, three weeks. I was just didn't know what to do. I quit my job. Um, you know, I had benefits. I, I was a, a high-paid elected official, and I had quit that all. Um, and I had a family of five for this chance to go on Shark Tank, and they had cut me. Um, so three weeks later, you know, after the, the depression, you know, took a back seat, I was like, you know what, it's time for me to go full time. If I'm not going to go full time with my company, it will never launch. It will never, you know, be successful. You know, it, it had to happen. And it was a blessing that, that Shark Tank had cut me because if I would have went on the show and, you know, I had, I was I had very little knowledge of being an entrepreneur then and, and about companies, about equity. I would have probably given up over half of my company and, you know, given a deal to anyone. I would have said yes for any deal because I was so desperate, right? And I, and, and I thought that would have been the right choice at the time. But now looking back, 
you know, if I was to go on the show, they, they still keep in touch with me. They send me emails. Hey, Rob, how's the company doing? Blah, blah, blah. If I was to go on the show today, I probably wouldn't even make a deal because I know how much my company's worth today. Um, so it was, you know, it was the worst thing that had happened to me. It was the first thing that the punch in the face that, that like, I quit everything and then on this one chance and it didn't happen. Uh, but it was a blessing in disguise because all kinds of things happened from it. Just see the fun in life. And that's not anything you have to follow or some cookie cutter niche guidelines. It's like, just go do your thing. Grab your camera, grab your mic, tell your story. Um, that's invaluable, you know? And if you're coming from a place of authenticity, people will respect it and appreciate it. You don't need to be like anybody. Definitely. Uh, well, I'm glad you said that. You kind of touched on where I was going to head next, but there's this kind of stigma in the creative world, I would say, that's like, don't do blank because it's too saturated. Don't start a podcast because there's tons of podcasts. Don't start a YouTube channel. There's already over 500 million active YouTube channels. Like you're just going to get drowned out. So uh, you kind of touched on your thoughts already and just the advice to get started and pick up the camera and go. Uh, but what are your general thoughts on on that phrase or that stigma of don't get started because it's too saturated? Yeah, well, I think if you're good, you'll rise to the top. You know, I, I really do. I believe that. And, you know, part of putting yourself into that process is loving what you do. And I know it's almost a cliche, right? It's like, oh, you got to love what you do. Well, you do specifically because the world we live in, particularly online, is so saturated and it's going to be tough. And there's going to be, could be years before you get where you want to be, before you're getting the exposure you want. And you have to love it enough to continue to grow and expand on your craft. Um, and, and I always use the example, people don't walk up to you on the street and put their arm around you and say, hey, you, you don't know me, but that, that YouTube channel that you're you know, thinking about starting, it's going to go to the moon, right? Like that will never happen. People only know what they see. You have to see it before they do. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the, the beauty. It's like, sure, it's saturated. Be better than everyone. Just put in more time. Love it. Be immerse yourself in that world. You know, this, like your world within is, is, you know, arbitrary and niche as it is. Like, that's my life. I live and breathe it. Um, I wake up and I think about what I'm going to write and I plan out my day and I get my camera ready and my mic ready. And, you know, I plan my travel around it, my meetings around it, everything around it because I love it. And if someone's going to exceed what I'm doing, they're going to have to work very hard because all my eggs are in that basket. And, And I think that's the difference. The thing is, and I understand this better than I did a few years ago, it's simply not for everyone because people look at life differently and that's fine. One of my best friends from high school, love the guy, he's like a brother to me, doesn't get what I do, will never enjoy it, will never find value in it. He's, he's, very, he's nine to five. He's got his family that means the world to him. He finishes his work. He gets the hell out of there. He shuts off his mind and he's the happiest person I know. And to me, beautiful, right? He, he just doesn't think or, or see the world through the same lens I do. And it's fine, right? But this stuff excites me and I need this and I enjoy this. And I feel like I'm, I'm better creatively as, a, as an entrepreneur in every aspect of my life when all this stuff sort of bleeds together. And, and so, hey, you know, all you can do is tell your story and add value in the way you think's best. And whoever wants to consume that, power to them. If, if they don't, tip my cap, keep on moving, keep doing your thing. 
Um, but yeah, it's not one size fits all for sure. Um, and they're trying to figure out which one they should do. Well, really, it's all connected to the same thing. They have a dominant gift, and the gift is a gift of creativity. So I think understanding that it's don't try to narrow your purpose down to just one box. There's there's always going to be multiple expressions of purpose. So that'd be the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is this. You know, Parker, I think a lot of times we think the worst thing that could happen to us is to fail. The fear of failure is the number one thing that keeps us from really discovering our purpose, which is the first step. You, you've got to go through the process of discovery. Uh, but the worst thing that could happen in life is not failure. The worst thing that could happen is for you or I to become successful at the wrong thing. That is far more dangerous than failing. I would rather try something, fail, and learn from it than to become successful at the wrong thing, to spend the rest of my life pursuing a career when I could be fulfilling my purpose. Everyone listening knows it's possible to get up every morning, go to a job that pays you, maybe even pays you well, but leaves you empty. You're miserable. You've got these golden handcuffs on. Like, I like the paycheck. I like the stability. But I know there's something more inside of me. I know that I'm supposed to be doing something else. And so, I would really encourage people to reframe that thought that failure is the worst thing that can happen. It's not. Worse than that is to get to retirement and know that you never fulfilled what you could have done with your life had you just taken a risk, taken a chance, and taken a step of faith and really believed in yourself enough to give yourself permission to even fail, even if you made a mistake. I don't, listen, Parker, I don't know anybody that has fulfilled purpose or is walking in their purpose who didn't encounter failure on the way. That failure was an incredible teacher. And I haven't talked to one person that says they regretted the failure because it became one of their greatest catalysts for growth and fulfillment. So when I started celebrating those accomplishments, energy flows back into my life, excitement. Now I'm happy. I'm not depressed. I don't feel defeated. I want to go do more. I want to share this message with other people. And you can do that in your life. If you're dealing with regret because of what the pandemic done to you, if you're living with regret because of, of, of you know, you didn't feel like you got a, a promotion at work when you should have. You're, if you're living with regret because you feel like if you would have applied your all in that relationship, that person would have never left you. Start celebrating the accomplishments, the experiences that you have, because that's how you bring energy and excitement and fulfillment back into your life. Awesome stuff. See, I relate to it. <laughs> I relate to it. I mean, I'm just like, as you're saying those things, I'm, and I hope this is happening with the listeners as well, but as you're saying those things, I'm getting flashes in my head of like how this is relevant to me, you know? Oh and, God, yeah. And I, I was thinking about you too, right? So, so like, I don't know how like real you want to get on the podcast, but. Real, real. Let's but, do it. So, all right. So you go viral with this McDonald's cup beatboxing do you feel like how how long ago was that five years ago all right five years ago could you right now in this moment look back at that moment in your life and go man if i would know what i knew now i would have did so much more with that opportunity yes yeah yeah absolutely what you done differently well, first of all, I would have jumped into podcasting sooner, but I also would have, I would have done kind of a TikTok style thing on, I guess, Instagram or, or whatever was big at that time, Facebook, short videos. Uh, and I would have just started beatboxing every single day with, with different ideas. Um, whereas what happened was the, uh, you know, the video went big and then everyone wanted me to come speak and perform beatboxing at their events. 
And so I started getting into that, which I don't totally regret because I really love the motivational space and, and podcasting and speaking. Uh, however, it, it, at this moment in time, it feels like I'm not as successful as I was five years ago. It feels like I've gone backwards and that, you know, is not a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I get it completely. Right. Uh, it doesn't feel good when you think about that. Now you thought about that long enough. You, I, we probably have, I probably have to do a digital hug. <laughs> 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 Let's do the opposite. What did that experience reward you? Oh, so much credibility and knowledge. You know, everyone, um, like I learned a lot from that. And also, um, like I can say things like, oh, I've, I've connected with this person. I've been on this TV show. I learned about what happens behind the scenes of like reality TV. Like there's so much I learned and so many people I connected with. Um, and I got, you know, a TEDx presentation from that and a whole bunch of, guidance and experience from it already feeling better <laughs> the listeners yeah. probably getting excited for you yeah man yeah you know what i mean <laughs> yeah that's what's crazy but what happened all you did was change your focus yeah and sometimes we need that outside perspective to look we need that coach in our life to be like hey look at the good things let's celebrate this hey let's make these mindset shifts because that is how you start to shift your life and realize that if you could pick when in history you wanted to be born, right now would be when you pick. Uh, on almost every measure, things are way better right now than they were 30 years ago. Health, education, security, even our partisan arguing, uh, things, are, things are better. It just doesn't feel better because the media thrives on conflict and it feels like the world is on fire all the time. But actually, things are pretty darn good. Uh, this is a good time to be alive. So it's good to take a historical approach to remember that. I have an optimism about America. And that's because if we look in our history, um, I, I have great confidence in America as muddlers. And what I mean by that is that despite all of the, the, the greed, and the corruption and the stupidity and the divisions in our history through problems that are worse than the problems we have now, we've always managed to muddle our way through. And we almost all, well, we do, we always come out the other end as a country better than we went into the crisis. And so we muddle, we muddle our way through. And I, I feel that we will muddle our way through this one as well. All right, so that's so there's that that perspective. Sort of take a chill pill. <laughs> the world's not ending, uh, so there's that. And just focus on gratitude too. Like focus yeah, on what exactly. we do have. <laughs> exactly, because what we have is amazing, amazing, and and you for, it's easy to forget that when we just look at all the negativity in in our media sources. So so there's that. Have the gratitude. The second thing is get your information from more than one source. Then if there's one thing you can do to get some perspective on the debates that we're having, it's to get your information from more than one source. I, I heard uh, a, a good rule of thumb, just that your social media feeds, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, that a solid 10% should be things that infuriate you, that, that you should follow a few people 
who you know you disagree with. Because what that does is it protects you from having an impervious bubble of the, the confirmation bias where you're never bothered by an idea you don't already agree with. <laughs> uh, if you can have a good 10 to 15% of your social media feed be opposition, th things that you don't agree with, then that is a good reality check to your own bias bubble. So there's that. Uh, get your news from more than one source. I, I tend to not get my news from broadcast media at all. So I, I don't watch cable news. You know, people accuse me, you know, my, my liberal friends accuse me of watching, of getting my information from Fox News. And my conservative friends accuse me of getting my information from CNN or MSNBC. And that's just because I'm not parroting back to them what they think is going on. And the truth is, I don't watch any of those channels because by and large, it's a complete waste of time. The, the broadcast media, the model of the broadcast media do not lend themselves to thoughtful conversation or discourse. So you have to read you know, because written news, while it's no guarantee that it's not propaganda, if they're writing it, they have to write entire thoughts down in paragraph form. It's harder to schnooker someone in writing where in broadcast media, you can have a alarming picture with some ominous music. And next thing you know, you're reacting emotionally to what they're saying. Uh, when it's written, it, it's, it's at least one level removed from that kind of easy manipulation that broadcast media can do. So you have to read. Um, I also am a huge fan of podcasts. That's why I loved uh, the invitation to speak to you today. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And because podcasts are long-form journalism, it's it's the ability to have an in-depth conversation, not a 30-second soundbite. And you can listen to experts that way. So I get my um, economics news from economists. I get my history news from historians. I get my science news from scientists. And so I'm not getting my news from the other problem with the broadcast media is the person giving you the news, their primary qualification is to be able to read a script and look fabulous while doing so. <laughs> that is that is their qualification. That's why they have that job. That's not who you want to be giving you your news as an actor. Um, and so I get my news from experts. And so getting news from multiple sources, multiple modalities, and and multiple perspectives if you'll do those things, again, it's all about triangulating for truth to try to find the, the, if you hear the same thing said from multiple sources, you've got a fighting chance that that thing might actually be true. That's today's episode, but thank you guys again for listening. Check the description or go to this episode on my website, parkercane.co, parkercane.co, uh, for all the featured episode details so that you can find the ones you're most interested in. If you enjoyed this episode or got value from it, please share it with a friend and leave an upbeat review that is always super appreciated. You guys are the best. I'll see you next week. This is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker K. Subscribe at parkerk.co.